Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. This is the view from the lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast. There, I've changed the start in case we're contributing uh, to the Groundhog Day of the results. I'm Danny Kelly. Welcome aboard, everybody. And joining me um, from The Athletic are James Moore and Tim Spears. Hello, everybody. Um, let's get straight into that, uh, in many ways, record-breaking defeat last night to West Ham United. Got some stats for you. Let's start with a positive one. I'm looking at you, James and Tim. Can you remember the last time Spurs failed to score in a domestic match? Um, ooh, I mean, no, actually. It must be, is it a way back into last season? It's 25 games ago. Spurs were on an unbelievable tear of always scoring in games. So what's that, like March? Can't remember right now, but I, I did read somewhere that it's 24, 20, now 25 games since they last failed to score. Arsenal feels, I mean, they definitely didn't score. I suppose that was January, so maybe it isn't that. Oh, I found it. Oh, what a match. Oh, not Wolves. <laughs> not Proxy Wolves. Come on. 4th of March, Adama Traore. Wolverhampton Wanderers 1, Tottenham Hotspur 0. All right. So Spurs score in every game, which is fantastic. Now, um, off the back of that, we can tell other uh, things. Um, first time in the Premier League history that a team has um, scored the first goal in five consecutive games and failed to win them. First time in Premier League history that a team has lost three successive home games despite going 1-0 up in each game. Let's just start with these leads, this leads thing. Um, mental or tactical, Tim Spears? I don't think tactical. I think I think it's more the players on show, really, than the tactics. But this is one of the things we discussed when things were going well, that they don't have enough regular goal scorers to potentially get them out of trouble on tough afternoons against low blocks. I remember us saying that a long time ago. You know, this guy, this manager does not care about clean sheets. His mantra, his deep thinking mantra is score more goals than the opposition. And if they're not creating enough good chances to score enough goals, then they're always going to concede. And they've got issues against low blocks for sure. Um, Sheffield United and now West Ham being, I guess, the two most obvious examples of that. Um, and there's not enough variety in the attack. I mean, the amount of space that the that the wide players were given last night, and they put endless amounts of crosses in. I think it's 19 crosses, which just seems pointless to me. So yeah, I feel like at the moment, um, not enough quality, not enough options from the bench for sure. And if your mantra is to outscore the opposition, and you haven't got enough players who can score goals regularly, then this is going to happen, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if you if you look through if you look, went through those games one by one, Wolves away, they weren't great, but they were one nil up for eighty eight minutes or whatever it was. Had a decent amount of the ball, didn't have many good chances, but had a few. Didn't didn't kill the game off when they kind of had the momentum to do that, and then ended up losing. Villa. Played well. Of all of those games, is the one they probably did the most in terms of creating good opportunities. 
weren't they weren't clinical enough in that game and they were punished for that. Man City, uh, they created a decent amount for a game against a team like Manchester City. And they were far more clinical and then they got a really good result. And then West Ham last night didn't really create that much to my mind, despite having quite a few shots. Uh, you know, I don't think there were many moments where they kind of carved their way through West Ham at all. A lot of kind of shots down the goalkeeper's throat from the edge of the box in the first half, really. Like tame shots from, you know, 15 to 25 yards. James, when you do that, though, when you when you look at the games individually, um, it kind of obscures, and maybe not deliberately, um, whether, I, I don't know whether we're talking about a pattern here. Five, is five games enough to establish a pattern? Just as I didn't go complete, I really enjoyed it when Spurs were winning games and on top of the table. Of course I enjoyed it. Why, why wouldn't you? But I wasn't entirely convinced by what they were doing, um, which, of course, gets you uh, uh, look, sideways looks from some folk. Equally now, I, I, I'm not I'm not sure I want to panic yet because I, I don't, don't know that it's a pattern because last night, um, for the first time, at least we're all in agreement that David Moyes said that they played some great football spurs that are one of the best teams in the country. Like, this was after the game, right? Of course, you know, piss taker. Thanks very much indeed. Um, but for the first time, both the manager and the captain um, had negative things to say about the team. Tim, I must say, and um, James, I'm, re- I'm waiting for you to come in off your um, regular run-up here. Uh, Tim, for the first 30 minutes, I did enjoy the game. I thought they played um, slick football without ever looking like they were going to marmalise West Ham, if I'm truthful. That's quite a big caveat, that. It is, it is. But uh, keep your caveat in the, in the bag, Tim, and then um, just uh, they were all right for the first half an hour, weren't they? I thought they were. I, f- I thought for the first sort of 10 minutes, they were great. <laughs> we'll be getting down to the first 30 seconds next. Hang on, hang on. We're telling a story here, right? First 10 minutes, they're great. I do love the way that they start every single match without fail. Good for the coin toss. <laughs> the way they came out. Oh, the way they came out of the tunnel. Something else. <laughs> that warm-up. But the the, in- the intent every single time with such intensity and pace. And then I thought I could see the game really settling into a pattern that would be really dull. West Ham had 11 players behind the ball. It got to around the 10-minute mark, and I was like, this is going to be a long half because they were defending so deep and so narrow. They were defending like a League One team in an FA Cup away game at a, at a big club. You know, they were unashamedly sort of hoofing it clear. So to get the goal from the set piece, I thought was was absolute, an absolutely perfect setup for the night because it sort of came from nowhere and West Ham were then enough to eventually sort of come out and play a bit and that would benefit Spurs because as we know, they don't like playing against a low block. But I thought for the rest of the half, they were just sort of expecting and waiting for it to happen. I thought their levels were definitely below what we've seen in recent weeks in terms of the football that they produce, in terms of the combination play, it wasn't quite there. And the issues we've seen against low blocks just resurfaced again. It wasn't a big surprise. But I thought they played some nice football. They passed it around well. They dominate the match. But I didn't particularly think, wow. You know, I just thought they're in control here and they should win this match. But what they didn't do was replicate the start of the first half at the start of the second half. And West Ham sort of got a foothold. And then they've got lucky with their, with certainly with, a, with, with, well, with both goals, let's be honest, from their point of view. I know this is a thing that people always say when they watch their team lose. But they moved the ball so slowly for the most part. I found the whole first half really frustrating. And I know you were kind of alluding to the thing that I tweeted last night there and got a kind of mixed response to. But yeah, you know, maybe that was a little bit harsh, but maybe we've really discovered the difference between not good and bad, if you see what I mean. Like, I I didn't think it was good. 
whether or not it was bad, maybe it was a slightly different different question. But they had so much of the ball. And it is obvious that in a Premier League game against a team like West Ham, who are obviously not completely useless, uh, and that's you know not being generous, that there's always going to be a moment in a game where they're going to have an opportunity. Particularly, and it didn't come from this, but they're so good at set pieces that if you don't kill the game off when you're massively on top for 45 minutes in terms of possession and you know field tilt or territory or whatever else you want to chuck in there, they would have been massively on top and all of those things Spurs, in the first half. If you don't kill the game off by getting at least a second goal, then you're always leaving yourself opportunity, uh, open to the possibility of what happened in the second half, which is West Ham scoring two absolutely comical nonsense goals and Spurs losing the game. And... You know, if we're talking about tweets that I got, <laughs> I've been criticised for, and this isn't the classic view from the lane thing of, oh, look at me, I was right. But look at me, I was right. In uh, August or September, when everyone was still on a massive high from beating Manchester United and, you know, starting the season well, I think it was after they went out the League Cup that I tweeted, oh, no, it must have been after the end of the transfer window that I tweeted, like, they haven't done enough to improve this squad. They've sold Harry Kane. They've replaced him with a, a wide forward who, in his first Premier League season, did okay, but like didn't score huge numbers of goals or provide huge numbers of assists. I mean, look, you're talking about a lack of creativity and a lack of clinical goal scorers. Well, <laughs> they sold the bloke who got loads of goals and loads of assists, the best player in the Premier League, and haven't really adequately replaced him. And this isn't me saying that Son shouldn't be playing up front and they should have signed someone else. But like they haven't replaced, the, just purely on the basis of those numbers, the goals and assists of Harry Kane. They haven't replaced that. And, and I'm not saying that's an easy thing. You can't go out and replace Harry Kane directly. But I'm, I'm really, I find it incredibly frustrating that people seem to uh, choose to ignore that. It's an obvious thing that they got wrong, in my opinion. And I know, and I know Postacogli said in his press conference in uh, the, his first press conference after that, the transfer deadline, he, you can't do it all in one transfer window, and it, you know it, it takes time to rebuild a team. And I, I no, obviously I agree with that, but I think I think they could have been a little bit more bold. I mean, it's just such an obvious thing that they missed. Like the second you take Madison out of that team, well, we know Madison is a player that will get injuries every now and then. The second you take him out of that team, there's just a minimal creativity, and then Son is the only player that's scoring goals, really, or going to score a decent number of goals. Um, when I was asked in the podcast immediately following. Kane's departure where I thought Spurs would finish and I rather rather ruefully said I suppose just above halfway mid-table um, you know I don't, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen but I, I, that, that's what his departure appeared to me to leave open as a possibility um, the thing about Van der Ven the thing about Van der Ven is this you know Christian Romero gets suspended Van der Ven's had an injury um, again, back to that transfer window, on the last day of the transfer window, within the last 48 hours of transfer window, they let uh, uh, not one, but two players who have played for their country at some level, uh, set it back in Tanganga and Rodon go. Um, was there a third? Well, they sold Sanchez after the, after the Premier League window closed. They sold Sanchez after, thank you, that's three. Now look, all of those players have their deficiencies, but they are at least central defenders who some managers seem to think are, you know, perfectly good players. Um, and for, again, there, they, they, they just didn't reinforce. Now, I didn't realise at the time that um, the manager was just not going to have Eric Dyer. And, you know, that, that's that's his choice. I was interested afterwards in what Poster Coglu said very quickly 
uh, James, when he said that, um, you know, I didn't think we played well in the first half because if we had, we'd be three or four up. Um, he was talking about the conversion of chances there, I guess. But I'm not sure that they had the chances that were brilliant enough to say that they were spurning them. Yeah, I mean, how how often, I'm trying to think of how many times in that first half, it, it felt like they were close to scoring. You know, as Tim mentioned, they had a lot of kind of shots from range that were quite underwhelming. But the only other time, the only other time Fabianski looks like, well, there was that LaSalle shot from the edge of the box, I guess, that he had to turn over. But I think for a Premier League goalkeeper, and, you know, for all people say about Fabianski, he's a decent Premier League goalkeeper still. Um, that's fairly routine. The only other time that he looked worried was that, uh, I think it was Lo played the ball across the six-yard box and Zuma turned it onto the kind of angle of post and bar towards the end of the half. But other than that, I, I don't I don't think they were like unduly worried. And I'm sure if you're a West Ham fan watching the game, you were terrified because Spurs had so much of the ball and they were they were penned in so much. I mean, you say that, but then that, but then they created the best chance of the whole half for Paqueta and looked dangerous on the break. There were a couple of moments where uh, offside flag here or wrong pass there, and they'd have been in on goal. And I thought, you know, from West Ham point point, point of view, you can argue whether you like that style of football or you want, but they played it perfectly. Really, you have to say. If you look at the 11 that finished the match, I mean, it was a midfield of Saar, Skip and Kulisevsky and a front line of Richarlison, Valiz and Hill. It is a bit league cup though, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I know, I know they've had a couple of injuries there, but that, but to me that shows up, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's more than a couple of injuries, I suppose, really, isn't it? it, it it's not just Madison and Benteke, it's also in that instance, Solomon and Perisic. And in that match last night, you would have loved Perisic to be swinging over a few crosses. That brings me on to one of my points, actually. You know, you put Rich Allison on the big number nine who's good in the air. And I know, I think Danny wants to talk about the header that he put wide from the corner. But that's the only cross they put into the box after he'd come onto the pitch. Like no, no one swung the ball into the box for him to head. And I know West Ham are a big team. They did try a few more, but I thought the delivery, I mean, Kulisevsky put one into the stand that I can remember and another couple were over here. The quality of crosses just is, isn't isn't there, to be honest, from Kulisevsky or, or Johnson. The other thing I noticed about the game as it wore on is that Spurs' possession, we saw the stats, you know, huge amount of possession, was all being enjoyed at the most ridiculously slow pace. They, it only works the way Postacoglu, as far as I can see so far, because the jury's out, I can't work out, you know, I'm still trying to work out exactly what it is that they're doing to discomfort teams, other than those brilliant starts, as you say, Tim, where their pressing energy is quite remarkable. Um, it has to be done at pace. And in the whole second half, really, West Ham had got themselves into a place defensively where Spurs were being forced. To, they were The person receiving the ball was often doing so at a standstill, and then the next pass went to somebody else who was standing still. And I'm not saying that that's, you can't play like that. I'm saying that's what West Ham wanted. And in the end, um, the number of times Christian Romero had the ball at his feet and was staring at a number of very, very static targets forward of him, it didn't look good. It didn't look good. Is that is that a thing we expect to improve when Saar is able to actually start games again? I mean, I'm assuming he only played the last 10 minutes or whatever it was because he wasn't fit enough to play any more than that. I mean, I would suspect if he had started the game ahead of 
Hoiberg that he would have kind of dropped off and shown Villa ball more and turned more quickly and laid the ball off more quickly. And it only needs to be like a fraction of a second quicker, all of those things to make a massive difference in terms of moving the ball up the pitch. I think he would have made a difference last night. I wasn't particularly impressed with Hoiberg, to be honest. From the moment he air shots at the cross in the first few minutes and you just thought, you know, that, 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 everyone's done that. But it just felt like it wasn't really the game for him. Like, you know, we said what we said about the way West Ham were going to play and they were going to be compact and Spurs were going to have to break them down. I mean, maybe there's not a vast difference between Skip and Hoiberg, but I would say Skip's probably slightly better suited to kind of spotting those passes. Look, it would be, it would be wrong to pick out Hoiberg, you know, on this occasion. He, he started poorly, I thought. His first two passes were odd and then he did the air shot and then he was no worse than, than everybody else, really, uh, as the game wore on. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, that I, I wondered, Tim, just looking at it with your expert eye, did we play into West Ham's hands with the inverted fullbacks? By playing so narrow, that again is what West Ham wanted. They wanted the Spurs' creativity to be within the, the width of the penalty box where they had a bank of five and a bank of four. Yeah, perhaps. But then I thought the, the space that Johnson and Kulisevsky were then afforded, they just didn't take advantage of it. And I thought, actually, in that first sort of 10, 15 minutes, Son was the most creative influence and slipping passes through. And they looked dangerous in that regard. But there just wasn't the sort of combination play, really, that we've been used to out wide. A doggy coming and playing one-twos, Poro coming and playing one-twos. We, it just didn't really happen. And I, I, I think... A large extent of that is down to the way West Ham defended, and we have we have to give them credit because it's not just it's not just a Championship team coming up, uh, and, and with Championship level defenders, these are top level players who have been instructed to play in a very particular way, and and trained very well to do that. But creativity is creativity is the, the biggest problem for me, Danny. I think like like I said earlier, they're always going to concede goals in this, and he's not going to change the way uh, that they're going to play, but. Creativity is massively dipped and it, it does coincide with Madison being injured, but they're 11th in the table for expected goals this season. And that's below Everton and Brentford and Man United and others. And I do think there is a case here and it's been, it's been extreme in the way it's happened because they've gone from 10 unbeaten games to five without a win. Of course, if the season had been the other way around and we'd lost the first, hadn't won the first five and then had that run, we'd be just going, oh, this is coming together nicely now, isn't it? Yeah, of course. But but there is a case of, re- of reverting to the mean here in terms of their league position for sure. I mean, I'm not just talking about XG here. I'm talking about actual goals and actual uh, conceded goals because they're not great in either of those. If you look at the top eight teams, they're towards the bottom for goals scored and the amount of goals they conceded. So I think the the run that they went on did mask these things a lot for for, for a lot of people. I mean, I know it's something that, that we discussed on here in terms of uh, squad depth issues and lack of regular goal scorers other than Hassan and defensive fragility issues. So it's extreme the way it's come about and that's been compounded by the injury list. At the time, and I, I could I could be, I mean, I'm, I'm admitting here, James, against all the traditions of this podcast, I could be wrong here. Um, when he took off La Celso, um, I assumed Johnson would be coming off for that first uh, attacking substitution with Richarlison. Um, had I missed something um, or, or was the Celso worse than everybody else? I mean, I certainly didn't think he was worse than everybody or really anybody else. It struck me as odd that the player who can play a four-yard pass between two players was the one who came off. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thinking was... Mousson wide, power centre forward. We, we put, yeah, yeah, get get Kolesevsky into midfield and you can't have both, I guess. I mean, that would have been the moment for Sarah, I think, when you're kind of starting to make that first raft of substitutions 
Um, but again, I mean, uh, maybe it was felt he could only play 10 minutes, like which Alisson can only play 10 minutes at the weekend. Uh, but yeah, I, w- I was surprised by that. I mean, I, I thought, having seen one of the best moments we've seen from Johnson so far on Sunday, that the, the ball he played to Kulisewski for the third goal, it did feel like he, I mean, maybe this is maybe this is unfair. It felt like he lost a bit of confidence. Like he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't putting the ball into the box. He wasn't taking on a man. I mean, it's probably a lot of this applies to Kulisewski as well, to be fair. It didn't really feel like he, when he got the ball, he had kind of a, a picture in his mind of how he was going to like progress the ball either up the pitch or into the penalty area. I mean, it probably doesn't just apply to him, to be fair. Well, I feel like with him in particular, there's a clear distinction between him playing well in games where Spurs are having to do a bit of counter-attacking, like Arsenal away, I thought he was good, and yeah, to an extent City away. And then when Spurs have an awful lot of possession against a low block, he's, he's I mean, has he done that much in his career? Certainly didn't, certainly didn't do that at Forest last season. I think his game is more better suited to counter-attacking and his explosive pace. He's not a technical finesse player, is he? He's more of a quick movement, quick pace, very direct. But when it, when you when defenders are stopping you, and like you say, you've got to sort of think about it. I think well, you put it really well. To face, he's not he's not painting a picture, so he's he's not used to that. I'm not saying he can't do it in the future, but I don't think he can do it now. I mean, and and when they've got a fully fit squad or something approaching that then he can be the player you bring off the bench, you know, at 2-0 in that game. I'm sure I'm sure that's what they had in mind for him this season, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The manager made several changes. There was a, a moment, I don't know if you saw it in the stadium, but on the TV, um, when, when Brian Hill came on, um, he was trying to half cover his mouth so as not to give the game away, but with his fingers... He made the symbol four, then two, then four. Spurs had gone to four, two, four. Great. We know they're after chasing the game. Um, and effectively, they had four or five forwards throughout the game because, you know, West Ham were prepared to, to, to set, sit on the edge of their, of their own box. Um, questions will be asked because they didn't come from behind as they did against Sheffield United, you know. So question will be asked, Tim, about game management, whether it's the manager or the players who are not managing these games particularly well. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and we, we've we've seen one extreme of it at Wolves, where they went completely the other way and into their shells, and not proactive enough, and not creating. Chances, which he hated by his own admission. Which he hated, and then he obviously wants these fast starts, take the game by the scruff of the neck, get blow away into a two-three goal lead, but defending a one-nil lead is not something they've done what too often this season, or a small lead. The Fulham game sort of springs to mind, but otherwise. You have to say it's not just a coincidence that they're taking the lead in every match and not winning the matches. I think game management has something to do with it, but um, they seem incapable, other than with the old tactical switch here and there, like Man City away when when Hoiberg came on for Hill and really changed the pattern of the play. Otherwise, it's all very um, it's all very focused in one direction, and I think there's definitely a case for him to have a slight rethink on that front. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. This is The View from Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Tim Spears and James Moore are still with me. And Tim, um, with your normal impeccable timing, or is it the athletics impeccable timing, when Dejan Kulisevsky has his worst game for some considerable time, just off the back of a, a piece by you where you've traveled to Sweden, spoken to the people who were important in his in his development as a footballer um, and talking about what a fine footballer he is. Yeah, I went to Sweden some some time ago. I can't hide that. Uh, if people want to, if people are bored enough to look at my social media, they see that I did, yeah, did go some time ago. Uh, for another thing, I went to go and watch uh, Zlatan and then thought, I thought, or maybe James thought, Probably James. Uh, yeah, did you rather look at his face? It was James. Uh, why not pop over to see um, Kulisevsky's first club? Which one was that? Remind me where he was. Yeah, what's the name of the club, Tim? Uh, BP, uh, as they're known. The real, the real name is um, Bromer Josh Karner, aka the Bromer Boys. But anyway, they do have a really interesting story, and this is where Kulisevsky spent nine years at the very start of his career, age six to fifteen, before he moved over to. Italy and yeah, they're 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 in the shadow of all the other Stockholm clubs like uh, AIK and Hammerby, and um, they get by and they they thrive through their youth academy, which is they say the biggest in Europe, um, with four thousand players registered with them. A lot of those are grassroots, but they have an awful lot of um, very successful youth teams and. Of a recent Sweden squad of twenty-five players, they uh, eight of those players had either come through the academy or played for BP at one point or another. So they're very successful at what they do. The first team is like you know neither here nor there. They only they've only played in the top flight for the first time in two thousand six. They sort of flip between the divisions. But anyway, this is where Kulisevsky um, was brought up in a football sense, and also this is where his his parents. Um, still reside to this day and Kulisevsky still has a house there and goes back every summer. He goes back to train with his old coaches, one of whom I spoke to for the piece. And yeah, it was really interesting to hear about more how he sort of made himself and forged himself and his sort of work ethic attitude, which we see, you know, week in, week out, um, comes from within and also the way that he was brought up at this at this at this club with its focus on youth players and work ethic 
Yeah, I mean, let's be fair. The, the, the timing's unfortunate because we were praising him to the high heavens on the last podcast for his performance against Manchester City, where his work rate alone picks him out as an excellent player to have in any team. Um, last night, he just fell into the general malaise uh, on the pitch. I thought the piece was really interesting. For what it's worth, Tim, we all know that the transition from youth footballer to top professional and international footballer is bizarrely difficult to do. So I'm always fascinated with how they, how these people have done. And often, you know, it, it often comes back to either a very specific club earlier in their in their journey or um, one coach who just tells them that, you know, we're going to prove you and you're going to be great. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. There's the guy I spoke to, Andreas Engelmark, who's joint manager of the first team now with Olaf Melberg at BP. I kind of asked him, you know, was there a coach in this in this player's career who really influenced him? And he, and he said, no, not really. You know, he's still in touch with him now. He still sees him and speaks to him regularly. And he said, I've never really heard him talk about one manager in glowing terms who's had a massive influence on his career. It all sort of comes from within and with his parents, who people might know uh, from uh, Macedonia, who, of course, Kulisevsky could have played for. Um, so yeah, really interesting to to hear that sort of like inner self belief that he's had and inner confidence that he's had that he's always going to get to the top of the game. And also, Andreas said that when he left BPH fifteen, he was actually a pretty similar player to what he is now. Um, he's added work, defensive work ethic to his game, but that style of play, that intelligence, the combination play that he's so good at, and needing to know how to get around his speed to take defenders on, which of course is such a big part of his game, has always sort of been there really. So yeah, it was really interesting to go back and see uh, his roots and where he came from. Okay, so after the game, Son, the captain, after the game against West Ham, said that was unacceptable, we were soft. The manager was, by his standards, harsh in his criticism. Another opportunity, James, comes very soon, a couple of days' time, home to... Newcastle themselves had a, a terrible bump in the road in midweek. But I can't see how, partially because, as you say, they don't have uh, a squad with loads of people doing the traditional um, football cliches thing of banging on the manager's door to get a start. It'll be much the same, won't it? Yeah, I mean, I guess it'll have to be. I suppose we talked about Saar a bit earlier. Uh, and dependent on his fitness, I guess he might be the one change you could see. Other than that, yeah, it, it's going to have to be similar. I, I mean, I didn't see Newcastle's game last night, obviously, because I was at the Tottenham game, but it didn't sound like they were especially great. I mean, I, I guess they kind of collapsed towards the end, didn't they? The, the three goals, I think, were all quite late in the game, the last sort of 15, 20 minutes. I mean, I don't know if that's a case of the kind of injuries catching up with them. They play more or less the same team in every game, not, not really uh, through choice. I spoke to two Newcastle fans who were at the game um, in preparation for this late last night. And they said it was the, the bizarrest thing you could imagine. Although, since they had their injury crisis, you could argue that Kieran Trippier has been magnificent, carrying the team on his back at times. They seem to think that he was the reason um, why why they didn't do so well. Physically and mentally, I think, like playing, you know, they had that Champions League game last week, uh, the PSG game, where they didn't make a substitution, did they? Just looking at the stats here on my phone, they didn't make a substitution until the 90th minute uh, at 2 0 down last night so obviously sort of similar to Spurs you know this injury crisis they've got is like really hampering them they have managed to get more results in that time than Spurs have it has to be said yeah that that might be the one thing uh, if that sort of knocks them out of their rhythm a little bit uh, and they've got a big Champions League game the following midweek I'm assuming on the Wednesday given the games on Sunday that they might have one eye on that more than one eye on that if they they win that game they surely are going to go through 
PSG aren't going to win in Dortmund, surely. I, I know Dortmund are through and they might rotate, but I, I, I mean, I certainly believe that if they win, they will go through. I mean, you, you can never really tell with these things whether or not that's going to make a big difference. But yeah, that would be the one thing I'd cling to, the fact that Newcastle have been rocked in a similar way, I suppose, with, with injuries. And obviously, this is mentioned to Tonali as well. Um, I was I did have did have one eye on Kieran Trippier because he was one yellow card away from suspension, uh, but he he didn't get one. So it's the perfect time to play them. I'm not questioning. I don't know if you guys are. You know, Spurs is sort of energy or fatigue. I don't think that was an issue last night. I don't think they were physically. In, in other games, it's been more obvious than that. In other games, in the Villa game, it felt like there was more of a drop off. Yeah, and I think a lot. Yeah, a lot. A lot of that was too with how the game unfolded, and it was one end to the other with the offside traps and whatever. But. Um, I, I feel like this, this in theory, it's the perfect time to play Newcastle because they, they they look out on their feet. And by all accounts, last night that was a real issue. That doesn't suggest classic game to me, but I mean, maybe it'll be four three or whatever. But in in terms of what Spurs can actually do, what what changes can he make? Go one nil down. Yeah, statistically, I'm not sure that's the best plan, but you know, <laughs> Richarlison's an interesting one. Uh, I assume he's not ready to start yet. But he's he's someone that can come in and change the dynamic of this attack, which is what we're talking about being an issue, in my mind, anyway. I mean, you're right. If he's not fit, maybe it's not suitable. He's just a bit more aggressive off the ball than Johnson or Kulusevski or something, really. It would just, like, go after people and kind of try and, you know, win the ball back and whatever. And I, I, I don't know, maybe it feels like you need something slightly different. You're, you're making him sound like the bloke from the pub that you pick up to be 12th man on Hackney Marshes. He gets he gets, he gets after the oppo, don't he? He gets after them. Got to expect more than that for a £60 million footballer. <laughs> Newcastle's defence, you know, they're, 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 they're pretty rough and aggressive and... Maybe if Charleston could do 60 minutes, if, if he can do 60 minutes, I'd much rather he start. Does he start at centre or does he start on the left? That's it. It opens up a lot of questions with not easy answers. And I would definitely think about Kulisevsky in the 10 because they're really lacking in that area. And if you can have Johnson and Richarlison either side of Son, I don't know, that then becomes, a, they're a little bit too similar in terms of vertical players. Now, those are the players you've got on the pitch. You start Richarlison in the middle to to engage um, Newcastle's two and sometimes three very large centre-backs. So at least they feel they've got something uh, to be dealing with. Um, that, that, that's just me. Listen, everybody, I'm sorry that wasn't um, all singing, all dancing joy, but you've got to reflect the reality of one point from 15. Hope for the best. And of course, um, we're still enjoying the fact that they start off and trying to to get forward and, and, do, and doing their best to be attacking in front foot. Um, the manager himself has said it's about the results to some extent as well now, and I think that's a good return to a good place. Let's attack and let's get the results as well. Thank you very much to Tim and thank you very much to James. Busy as always, um, heading towards that next game against Newcastle. Just to remind you, we have an official home on Twitter these days at VFTL Podcast. And of course, you can always email us your questions and comments, many of which do get read out on the show at uh, VFTL at theathletic.com. Um, Tim's Kulusevsky story um, and all the best Spurs coverage is, of course, uh, on The Athletic itself, so make sure you sign up. Another great offer, actually, for you to take advantage of, one ninety nine a month for 12 months. Simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod in order to subscribe. The Athletic. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.